Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Take a minute, turn the radio up. Take a seat in the pastor's office. This is Pastor Jonathan Mason, and I want to welcome you back into the pastor's office. Can you believe it is already the last Sunday in July? I, I, I Listen, there are two times a year for pastors that are incredibly busy And in a lot of cases, incredibly stressful. They're blessings, but they have their challenges. Uh, That period would be the period leading up to Easter. And then the period leading up to Christmas. It seems as if, I don't know, when you get older, seems as if that time period between Easter and Christmas gets shorter and shorter. (laughs) I feel like I feel like it's already getting close to advent. It's already getting close. And when that time of year comes, then you segue right into watch night and the new year. So, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just seems like time is moving really really fast. August is going to be an incredibly busy month for me. Uh, I'll be doing my annual trip to Africa uh, for 10 days. And then my son, both of my sons are celebrating milestone birthdays this year. Uh, My son Jackson on the 3rd of August is going to turn 12. And then on the 28th of September, uh, my oldest will turn 16, 16, Lord have mercy. That means driving lessons. That means permits. That means a license. That means a car. That means insurance. <sighs> but I got good kids, so I, I, I count my many blessings. Uh, so we're entering into a very busy period of the year. But yet and still, we thank God for each and every day that we get a chance to see. And I'm glad to be here with you again this Sunday afternoon. We got a great show for you. Uh, we're going to be talking to a couple gentlemen whose life story I believe that you are really going to be fascinated by. Uh, we're going to start out by talking to Coach Robert Swain. Uh, he's just written a brand new book called Own Your Moment. We're going to talk about that here in a second. But then we're also going to replay an interview with Dr. James S. Hall. Let me say his name correctly. Reverend Dr. James S. Hall, Jr., the pastor of the Triumph Baptist Church here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Why are we replaying the interview? Because Pastor Hall this week 
turned 90 years old. He's been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ for over 70 years. He's been pastoring in Philadelphia for over 60 years. He is acknowledged by Jesse Jackson as his pastor. He spent time with Jackie Robinson. He is one of the great civil rights leaders that is still alive and well today from Marion, South Carolina. So I want to replay an interview we did with him about two years ago. And I believe you're going to be blessed to hear his story. 90 years young. So you stay tuned. Coming back after break, we're going to be replaying an interview where we talked to Reverend Dr. James S. Hall, Jr., the pastor of the Triumph Baptist Church right here in Philadelphia. But let's get started with the show. You know, one thing that I preach on a consistent basis and one thing any gospel preacher ought to always talk about is grace and mercy. My sermon this morning was on mercy. Jesus healed a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus because he had mercy on him and because of Bartimaeus' faith. Grace and mercy. We serve a God of second chances. I often like to say to people, how many of us are living on multiple chances? I'm not just talking about two chances. I'm not just talking about three chances. I'm not, I'm not just talking about four chances, but so many chances you can't count. We're living on grace. Somebody say that right now. I'm living on grace. Tell somebody riding in the car with you right now. I'm living on grace. And if they don't respond, tap them on the shoulder and say to them, you're living on grace too. Don't act so big and bad and almighty. We're all living on grace. Coach Swain's story, Coach Robert Swain's story, is a story of grace and second chances. So let me stop talking and let him do the talking. Let me welcome into the pastor's office for the very first time, Coach Robert Fuzzy Swain. Coach Swain, come on in the pastor's office and take a seat. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing, Pastor Mason? I am doing great. I want to thank you for taking time to be with us this afternoon uh, here in the pastor's office. Uh, You've just written a brand new book called Own Your Moment. Before we talk more about how people can access the book, let's give them a reason to buy the book. Why don't you do me a favor and just introduce yourself to our Philly's favorite audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, My name is Robert Swain. Grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. A single mother household, played uh, high school basketball throughout the summer, different AAU programs, one of the top players in Georgia. Uh, Basketball had always been my dream and my goals. Wanted to play in the NBA. I received a full basketball scholarship to the University of Connecticut, played for legendary coach Jim Calhoun. After having a winning national championship and playing at the University of Connecticut, I went on to play professional basketball in Europe five different countries, France, Spain, Lithuania, and Russia. Uh, Also learned how to speak three uh, three different languages. During that time I was playing basketball, I had a family, uh, five kids, had a wife, 
And then I end up getting injured. Once I got injured, I, I was presented with an opportunity to make some fast money. Going through that process, man, I, at the time, I didn't know it was an FBI sting. I saw the opportunity to make some quick money to, you know, take care of my family. And going through that situation, uh, my back was against the wall. I ended up getting set up by the FBI. Uh, I was looking at a life sentence, man, and had never been in trouble in my life, but I grew up around drugs and killings and murder, things like that. So it was easier for me to get involved with something like that, knowing that I had no business doing it. Uh, I ended up doing 25 months in federal prison. Uh, during that time, I was in solitary confinement for a while. That's when I came up with the phrase, own your moment. Uh, I had two choices, either either swim or sink. Uh, during those times, I was you know, locked up in a 8 by 10 cell, no windows. I didn't know if it was daylight. I didn't know if it was morning time. They were feeding me through a little mailbox. So during those times, I was really mentally challenged. And during those times, God came and spoke to me and, and gave me some ideas and thoughts and told me what I would be doing. And having Swain Basketball Academy was one of those things. Uh, Swain Basketball Academy is a basketball player development program for kids, for girls and boys. And we train professionals as well to put them in a situation to be able to go to college for free under a basketball scholarship. Now, Coach Wayne, let me just let me just park real quick because I, I don't want to rush through your story because your story is inspiring. Uh, because as I said earlier, we all have fallen, we've all made mistakes, and and God has still granted us grace. So let's let's dial back. Lifelong basketball player, and you became. Fairly good at your craft, right? I mean, you'd probably say you became great at your craft, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And so basketball was your present and basketball was your future. But then you obtained an injury. Tell us a little bit about the injury you sustained. I had a herniated disc, so I had to have back surgery. Okay. All right. And so when you had the herniated disc for back surgery, how long did they say you were going to be out? Or did they say your career would be effectively over? They didn't say, but they said I would be out about a year, year and a half. All right. So now you're out a year and a half. You've started a family, five children and a wife. God bless you, man. You you certainly uh you certainly upheld the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> so we we give, we give praise for that. Uh, so you got a young family, five children. By the way, at that particular point in time, how young was your youngest? How old was your oldest? At that particular time, my, my oldest was 15, and my youngest was about six months. Six months old. So you got a family to take care of. And as you shared, you've been around people who have engaged in uh, illegal activity, but you yourself never engaged. You were focused on your athletic career. So now talk to us about processing the needs of your family against the possibilities of not playing again, and then this opportunity way over here to the right where, yes, it's illegal, yes, it's something I shouldn't be doing, but it can help my family right now. Talk to us about how you processed all of that. Well, during during that time, all I had to do was really just ride in a vehicle, and I didn't think nothing of it until we got to a situation where I had the drugs in my possession, and I had to deliver the drug to what we call kingpins. And come to find out, 
they were undercover federal officers. Wow. All right, so yeah. t- so tell us a little bit about that that situation. So you're you're in the car. You've done some, I guess, pickups and drop offs, and and now you know you're you're dealing with it. Sounds like some serious weight because if you're taking it to a kingpin, they're not taking uh you know small weight. So you're taking some serious weight. Talk to us about that day, that incident, and what went through your mind when they revealed themselves as officers. That day, what went through my mind that day, that day, Pastor, uh, as I delivered the the, the 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 drugs, once we got into the warehouse, there was no turning back. I seen that these guys had guns under their ankles, under their waist, but at no time I could renege or retreat from the situation because I didn't know if they was pe- federal police officers at the time or they was real. Kingpins. So I'm thinking at the time they were real kingpins, and it could have got out of out of hand. So as I departed away from the scene, it was about a week later. Uh, I go out of town. My cell phone rings, and once my phone rings, nobody didn't say nothing. It was from an unknown number, and that happened two or three times. So at that time, I began to realize, you know, that my phone was tapped because that seemed very, very, very strange for you get an unknown call and nobody says nothing. All right, so so nobody says, but I'm trying to I'm trying to connect the phone to the issue. So what happened? They they called you to lead you or guide you to a certain place. What happened? Okay, I'm about to tell you right now. Okay, so it was about two weeks after that. Every morning I go to the gym, man. I was going to the gym and I was going to swim and stretch and things like that. You know, to try to get my back back right. I was in the LA Fitness in the morning time, and so when I walked out my house. There were a, a car that was trailing me, Pastor. And I looked out the window. That was strange because it was like 5 in the morning. So I said, let me make an unusual turn. And the car made that turn as well. Then I made another unusual turn. It didn't make that turn. And I said, oh, okay, well, that must not be nothing. So I park. I go into the gym. I was in the gym about 30 minutes. As soon as I come out the gym, it was like 10 officers rushed in front of me, five from my right, five from my left, three from the back. Drawing guns, get out, get out, get out. Where the gun, where the drug? And I'm down on my on my stomach, hand behind my back, and that's how that took place. Okay, I understand that. Got it. I want to paint the picture for our audience. We're talking to Coach Robert Fuzzy Swain. Uh, he is the author of the new book, Own Your Moment. And we're talking to him about his life story and what he learned from his successes and from his falls. So, Coach, talk to us a little bit about being sentenced and what you felt like when they told you you were going to be spending an extended period of time behind bars. Man, when, when the judge told me I would be spending time behind bars, man, it seemed like my life just stopped. You know, I was full of tears. I was full of remorse. I was hurt. Uh, and it's so strange because I wasn't hurt for what I did. I was hurt because I felt like I let my family down and my kids down. And that was a crucial time for my kids' development, being away out their life two and a half years that they's maturing to young men and young women. Yeah, and, and, and your wife was left to raise them on her own. She was left to raise them on her own. Yeah. So how how do you communicate? I mean, I'm sure your family was in court with you, but as you were preparing for the case, as you were preparing to go to trial, you know, did you prepare them mentally? Like, you know, dad may not be around for a while. I mean, how did that go down? Man, to be honest with you, I, I did not prepare them at all. It was one particular day at the time my daughter was in fourth grade, man, and I took her to school. 
And when I drove her to school, she got out the car. And as she was walking into the school building, I was looking back at her like, like, wow. Like, I just kept staring at the door, even when she walked in the door, because I knew I wasn't going to see for her at least two and a half years. Mm. And that's a memory that I'll never forget. So you go to prison, you're in solitary confinement. What happens in prison that rewires your mind or gives you the mindset that you've still got work to do, that you've still got greatness, as my friend Les Brown says, inside of you, and that you still can be a blessing to future generations. Talk to us about what happened in prison that kind of recalibrated your mind. What happened in prison, man, man, it seems like that was a time where I felt like God sat me down because when I was in the free world, everything was moving so fast. You got a lot of money. You're playing ball. You're traveling the world. You're doing different things. So I never got a really chance to sit down and just focus on me. Uh, God sat me down for those two and a half years. Um, and what I learned was, what I began to learn was when I, when I got there, I started working out and training my body, re- reading the Bible, gaining to understand what it is that God wants for me. And I was searching for him, but he never appeared. But I continued to read. I continued to process. I started training and developing inmates that was already on the prison yard. And once they told me, man, I wish I had someone like you when I was in the free world, maybe I wouldn't have been in here. Or I could have been good at this and could have been good at that. So I started mentoring and helping other young men with their future. So 25 months behind bars, you get out. Tell us what's next. 25 months behind bars, I get out, man. My, I ain't, my kids didn't have shoes and clothes. My wife only had one job. She was a school teacher, man, at the time. Uh, family turned their back on me. So I was walking down the street, man, and uh, I seen some guys doing construction work. So I asked him, I said, hey, excuse me. I said, you guys are hiring? He was like, uh. Oh, you know how to do construction work? I was like, no, but I'm a fast learner, man. I said, I just came home from federal prison. I got five kids. I need a job, man. So, mind you, Pastor, I had never worked a day in my life. All I ever did was play basketball. So I'm on this construction site, man. I'm talking about we working rain, sleet, or snow, cold, freezing, hot. They got me doing all kinds of stuff I never did, digging holes 50 feet deep. Oh, my God. I did that for 90 days, Pastor. Wow. After I did that for 90 days, I had to stop. I used to give my wife the little paycheck, and I say little because I had never seen that little money like that. It was maybe $500 a week or something like that, man. Mm-hmm. But I would keep $80 because I buy basketball. So every time I got paid, I buy basketball because I developed my business plan when I was in prison. Okay. So I walked away. I walked away from the construction, and I began to start Swain Basketball Academy. Tell us about Swain Basketball Academy. Swain Basketball Academy is a, a player development program where we train girls and boys in basketball. Uh, we mentor them as well. We try to put them in front of college coaches, build their skill set up, to give them opportunity to go to college for free on a basketball scholarship. Wow. And now how long has Swain Basketball Academy been in existence? Swain Basketball Academy been in existence since 2015. And how many young people would you say that have been blessed by Swain Basketball Academy since its inception? Pastor, I have trained over 8,000 kids. I have over 45 kids in colleges, whether it's Division One, Division Two, 
or JUCO. Wow. Man, listen, let me let me just pause real quick so our audience knows who we're talking to. You're listening to Philly's Favorite 100.7 FM, 99.5 HD3. We are talking to Coach Robert Fuzzy Swain. He is the author of the new book, Own Your Moment. This is a brother that was a standout athlete, standout basketball player, went to federal prison for a couple years, got out, started a basketball training program that has blessed over eight thousand young people did y'all hear that eight thousand young people coach swain talk to me man because listen we've got so much violence going on in our streets right now we're losing so many young people just talk to me a little bit about how it makes you feel to be able to touch young people and help redirect their lives man i'm glad you asked me that brother it, it brings a lot of joy to me. Uh, I mean, I get very emotional when I see a lot of different killers and people doing things that they're not supposed to be doing because they 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 are lost as a people. Meaning, the federal prison system is designed for to bring us down. They know from the next fifteen twenty years how many of us gonna be in their prison. So every chance I get to help a young man or a young lady, I do that, man. I do that. Because they, they, they need their help, man. They need to understand what own your moment, man. Uh, talk to us about one of your success stories. I mean, all of us who have lived and all of us who have made mentoring a part of our existence, a part of our life, we all got some success stories. And unfortunately, we all got some stories that weren't so successful. But talk to us about one of your great success stories. One of my great success stories, man, it, it came from this young lady, man, that I met. Uh, I was working with her. Her parents came to me one day, and they said, Coach Wayne, want to set up an appointment with you. So I met with them, and she said her daughter really loves basketball. She wanted to be able to play college basketball. And she said that all her coaches told her she's not good enough. She won't ever play college basketball. So I took the young lady as a client. Uh, we began to work out two and a half, three years, man. We worked hard. It was some days I was on her tough. She was leaving the gym crying. Some days she wanted to quit, but I didn't let her. To make a long story short, that young lady ended up signing a four-year scholarship, a $400,000 scholarship, basketball scholarship, to Alabama State. Wow. Wow. What a blessing. And do you stay yeah. connected to the young people? Do they come back and work with the program? Oh, yeah. They come back and work with the program. And they off-season, they come back and train to continue to get better and stay in shape as well. Nice, nice, nice. So you decided to put pen to paper and write this book, Own Your Moment. Obviously, it chronicles your life story and the work that you've done since coming out of prison to be a blessing to so many of our young people. Uh, what else you want to tell our listeners about the book? I want to tell the, I want to tell the audience, you guys, go get that book, Own Your Moment. Own Your Moment is a powerful phrase. Pastor, we were talking, and you mentioned something. You brought something to my attention. You said living on multiple chance. Yes, sir. Own your moment is an opportunity and chance that you get to own. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what the next five minutes brings. Whatever you're doing at that time, whatever your vision is, lock in. You may not get the opportunity again. Own your moment. I love that statement. I love the thought that comes behind own your moment. Live in the now. Make a difference right now. Bless somebody right now. Pay it back. Pay it forward right now. Tell us, tell our audience where they can pick up your book. 
Uh, you can get my book on Amazon. You can get on Amazon, the Amazon Prime. You can find me on social media and order it on Instagram at Swain underscore basketball as well. All right, listen, Philly's favorite listeners, you've done it before, and I want you to do it now. You have rallied to support guests that have come into the pastor's office, and I want you to support Coach Robert Fuzzy Swain. This man is making a difference. Own Your Moment is the book. It's available on Amazon. It's available on Amazon Prime. Go to his social media. Go ahead and give the social media tag again, Coach. My Instagram is Swain, S-W-A-I-N underscore basketball. Twitter is Swain Basketball. Website is SwainBasketballAcademy.com. Coach, I want to thank you for joining us in the pastor's office this afternoon. Listen, man, if we can ever be a help to you as you continue to be a blessing to others, all you got to do is holler. We're right here for you. God bless you, sir. Keep on doing what you do. I appreciate it, Pastor. And we'll be right back after these commercial messages with a special, special replay of an interview that we did with Reverend Dr. James S. Hall, Jr. as he celebrates his 90th birthday and over 70 years of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you dare go away. Hey, Philly's favorite listeners, Pastor Jonathan Mason, welcoming you back this Sunday into the pastor's office. Uh, We've got a special edition of the pastor's office this Sunday. One of the things that I've wanted to do uh, with this platform is talk to some of the senior pastors in Philadelphia and the surrounding areas. Uh, We've had an opportunity to talk to some great, great leaders Uh, of faith here in the city. And today is no different. As a matter of fact, today for me is a pinnacle uh, because uh, the gentleman that we're going to talk to today uh, is the founding pastor of the Triumph Baptist Church right here in Philadelphia. Uh, Not only is he the founding pastor of Triumph Baptist Church, but he also uh, is one of our iconic civil rights leaders. Uh, As a matter of fact, and we'll talk about this during the interview, I remember meeting uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson one time, and I mentioned Pastor Hall's name to him, and he said, immediately, that's my pastor. So, so, so Pastor Hall, I guess I've let the cat out of the bag, uh, uh, has a great, great legacy, not only in this city, but across the country. Uh, he's been preaching the gospel a mighty long time, and I wanted to spend today chatting with him. So why don't you do me a favor? Let's welcome into the pastor's office the founding pastor and pastor of the Triumph Baptist Church of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Pastor James S. Hall, Jr. Pastor, welcome into the office. Thank you so much, Pastor Mason. appreciate your calling me and having to come in. Well, we are excited to have you. Pastor, you, as, as, as we like to say, you've been toiling in the vineyard uh, a mighty long time. And I want uh, to let our Phillies favor listeners uh, hear about your background. So I'm, I'm going to just, if you don't mind, uh, just start at the beginning. Uh, you were born and raised in South Carolina. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Yes, I was born and raised in Marion, South Carolina, 1932, July the 24th. And I finished high school in Marion, the Marion County Training School. 
and then I went to Sumter, South Carolina, to Morris College. Morris College is a black Baptist school um, college that was, and that is owned and operated by the Missionary Baptist State Convention of South Carolina. And uh, I earned two degrees there, a B.S. degree in education, B.D. degree in um, divinity. And um, a few years later, I was granted the doctor of divinity degree from my alma mater. Um, I, I pastored in South Carolina up until um, 1963 when I came to Philadelphia. I pastored uh, three churches in South Carolina, the Mount Rona Baptist Church. I went there when I was 19 years old, and the Rafton Creek Baptist Church. And uh, then for six years, I pastored those two churches. And then I went to Greenville, South Carolina in 1957. And there uh, I pastored the Springfield Baptist Church until I came to Philadelphia in 1963. Now let's let's go let's let's stay in South Carolina for just a little bit. You were born in 1932. That means you were born and raised in the in the heart and soul of the South during Jim Crow. Yes, um, tell me a little bit about what it was like uh, to experience that type of racism and division uh, where where you grew up. It was. in the South when racism and it was not uh, those who were racist were not ashamed to um, own their racist attitude and practices. Um, we we went to a segregated school in South Carolina in Marion. Um, we had to walk, I had to walk about a mile and a quarter every day to school while uh, the white children were going to school on the big yellow buses. Um, we had to use books that they used. Um, so it was not an easy task, but we were determined. Now, one thing our parents taught us and, and they drove into us, that you got to get an education. You've got to be willing to suffer the hazards of segregation so that you will be better persons and can stand on what, what the perils might be of living in America when we were all supposed to be free, but but we know that we were not free. My father was a World War One soldier, and he would remind me often of what he went through, fought in World War One in Germany, but came back to America and was treated like he was a second-class citizen or a no-class citizen, really. So we had we had to do some basic things, and that was toughen our hide and throw back our chest and make determination that we were going to be what we thought God and we who knew God had destined us to be. Um, so I finished high school in 1951, a segregated school, but started preaching in 1951, November of 1951. Went to Morris College in 1952, January of 1952. And um, from there I started pastoring at the same same time almost, and the rest of it is, is history for some 70 years now, 71 years um, I've been preaching the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. And, so, yeah, and I've been pastoring around 70 years. Yes, sir. Been been at Triumph here in Philadelphia, 52 years, 
you know. Right. Morris Chapel here in Philadelphia for six years. Let me ask. Let me ask you this, because because we're going to get to Philadelphia and all that you've done with Triumph, but 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 your father was a World War One uh, veteran, came back and was treated like he was uh, a veteran of nothing, uh, based on what you said. Tell us a little bit about your mom and and siblings, just 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 the family yeah. environment that you were in, because I got to imagine going through uh, Jim Crow in 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 the heart of the South. There had to be a strong family bond there to keep you strong and keep you going. No question. You and you, you classified it right. You described it almost accurate. And we had that. There was a strong family bond in in little towns. Believe it or not. Well, in towns where blacks and whites lived together, and that was mostly true um, all over the South, and particularly in South Carolina, where I grew up. Um, but one thing our parents did, we there are some basics that we had to we had to follow. There was no question about you going to school. It was understood that you were going to school, um, even if you had to go for just a short period of time. My mother and father put a lot of emphasis on education. You were going to church. There was no question about that. Um, you didn't get up and have a choice. It was an option. It was it was an obligation as far as they were concerned. So those two things disciplined us. Going to school, going to church, gave us a sense of importance about what our lives would be like. And so um, my father was a pastor, um, um, pastor four churches at the same time, and was also a sharecropper, which means he was a farmer and pastor. To make a living, he had to, because the churches were really not able to, to, to support um him and his family, um, but he farmed and pastored four churches. Didn't get much, but got the, they did the very best they could because most of the people he pastored were sharecroppers. And I grew up with the awareness of the fact that one day I did not want to be a sharecropper. And when I say that, it means that we worked the farm, the land, but the owner of the farm, the owner of the land, got all of the benefits. Mm. Um, tobacco, cotton, corn, those kind of things we grew. But we did the work, and at the end of the year we would hear them say, you know, well, we broke even this year, <laughs> which meant that they were just going to give us enough to live on and, and still be in debt with them. It was difficult. But my father was would always give me the stories about his war experience, mm -hmm. and my father would also tell me Old Testament stories I think I was kind of bent in that way. A lot of my preaching is from the Old Testament because I was an only son and the youngest. I had three sisters in the household. And I would sit up at a fireplace. I don't know if you know what that means, Reverend. Mm -hmm. so you, you didn't have to come up with that kind of a fire, open fireplace where all of the family would gather around during the winter and we would study our lesson by the light of the fire or a lamp. And then we would go to bed. But he would always tell me, uh, an Old Testament story uh, would tell me some of his war experiences. And I could just imagine, you know, seeing him in the war and hearing him preach Old Testament stories. And I think that had something to do with bending my my theology and what my um, preaching pattern would be like. You know, I hear a lot of preachers in 2021, and most of them come from uh, the Synoptic Gospels. You don't hear a lot of good Old Testament preaching anymore, Pastor. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And some great stories in that Old Testament, dog. And the, one, and the one thing I share with people all the time, getting off topic for just a second, is that the Old Testament is strong enough to stand on its own. No uh, and 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 yeah. and I, I find so many people struggling to find Jesus in everything they preach from the Old Testament. But but I'm I'm sort of a believer in the um, in the thought process that the Bible is a uh, Christotelic. Uh, right. It leads exactly. to Jesus. Right. Uh, Jesus is the crescendo. Right. Uh, uh, but 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 it just amazes me sometimes where we where some of us and I used to just feel we got to go back and find Jesus in every Old Testament scripture. But watch this: <laughs> the Old Testament is strong enough. Just preach it by itself. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So so let me ask you this, uh, Pastor Hall. And again, uh, you're listening to Philly's favorite 100.7 FM, 99.5 HD3. Uh, we are talking to the iconic pastor, uh, the Triumph Baptist Church here in Philadelphia for 52 years, the founding pastor of this great church, uh, but he's been preaching for over 70 years. Pastor Hall talked to me about this, and I get a, I'm always fascinated to find out how you received your call to ministry, how long you ran from the call, <laughs> because you were a pastor's child, a PK, uh, and, and then when you finally embraced the call. Well, I knew, I knew um, believe it or not, I knew when I was nine years old, that the Lord had laid his hands on me. I had no question about it. Mm -hmm. And I would talk to my father and my mother about it. They did not encourage it, neither did they discourage me. They would just, you know, well, study. And my father would say to me, read everything. Everything you can put your hands on, read it. Um, so you can know what's going on in this world around you because preaching ought to be life-centered. And, uh, and I would do that. But at nine years old, I was aware of the fact that I was converted when I was eight, and I was aware of the fact that I was, uh, the Lord had laid his hands on me to be a preacher of the gospel. Hmm. And, um, and I was fortunate because my father never did pass our home church, but we, I grew up under pastors at our home church who themselves um, saw in me, and they would remind me quite often. We had a pastor by the name of Reverend N.A. Cato. He lived in Mar he lived in Florence, but he would come to Marion and pastor the church there. And he kind of took me as his son because when he came to us, he was single. He got married, and he never did have a son. He had one daughter, so he kind of took me as his son also. But um, at at nine years old, I was aware of my I said that I was aware of my um, call. I did not call did not acknowledge my call until I was eighteen years old. And one of the reasons, Reverend, was the doctor, Reverend Reverend. Um, um, Dr. Laverne McCummins, I don't know if you remember him, he used to be the president of Cheney okay. University. Mm -hmm. We were in high school, to, we were in school together, and he started preaching at an early age. We were dear friends, and I restrained myself without, without, accepting, without acknowledging my call to the ministry because he started preaching when he was something like 10 or 11 years old. I didn't want anybody to think that I was, was going to preach just because Laverne was preaching. Hmm. So I restrained myself until I finished high school, and then I made my acknowledgement of my call to the ministry. Amen. I didn't want anybody to think that I wanted to compete with anybody because I wanted my calling to be as spiritually unique as I know God wanted it to be. And I wanted to make sure that people whom I preached to and who knew me knew that mine was not a copy of somebody else but it was original of God for my calling 
to do, go into ministry. So I waited until I was um, 18 years old, acknowledged my call, and believe it or not, at 19, a year after I was called, I was called to pastor the Mount Rona Baptist Church in Florence County, South Carolina, my first church. Now, now, you know, one thing I always hear from, from seasoned pastors is, it, is that when you're called to a church, uh, you're preaching for the first few years, and then eventually uh, you start pastoring. Uh, was that was that the same situation with you? Were there some entrenched uh, uh, seasoned leaders? I'm trying to be delicate and uh, and, and but but what, talk to me about that. But you know, I I've, I'm very fortunate, and I've heard that, and I've seen preachers experience that kind of thing. But I'm very fortunate because I guess because I was so young, they kind of looked at me. One one of my deacons called me his son. He never did say Reverend. He just called me his son, mm-hmm. um, and and that was believe it or not, there was a Reverend um, um, Pickens. He passed right here in Philadelphia. Two Pickens died a couple of few years ago. His father was one of my deacons who wow. took me as a son, most soon as as his pastor. So I never did have that kind of uh, harsh experience with with. with uh, other lay persons in the church who had positions, because I never did call it a deacon board. I would have said deacon ministry. Yes, sir. So I never did have any problems with them because I think I just went in saying that you, your job and your position is that of a ministry and not a board that has um, authority to make the decisions as to what direction the church is going in. That was left to the pastor, and so I never did have any real problems with um any of the three churches that I pastored in South Carolina. My most problems were with the church that, the church that I pastored here, you know. Um, and, and consequently, um, when I came here and found that being, what you talk, raised as being different from the South, that really bothered me, you know. So when the Triumph Church was organized, I organized the church with the understanding that we were going to be a biblical-run church. And now the church that's run by... Uh, a board, a deacon board or a trustee board, we're going to ask the Lord to lead us in the way the church should be run by the scriptures. And that's, how, that's what we've tried to do here. We, we think about the Triangle Church as the three E's church, you know, education, economic empowerment, and evangelism. Yes, sir. You know what, I'm, I'm training a, a deacon right now, and the one thing that I made very clear, uh, you know, there are a whole lot of places where you can send your deacons to be trained. Uh, yeah. But I've always subscribed since I've been pastor. I certainly haven't been that long, only six years. I'm right. going to train my own deacons. That's right. Because That's right. if you train your own deacons, then they're going to learn what you want them to learn exactly. and, and operate the way that you want them to operate. And, and, and that's scriptural base. And right. uh, one of the things I was sharing last week in a training session is, you know, the the, the whole word deacon, the, 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 whole, the whole foundation was servants. Right. Uh, the, the the apostles needed somebody to serve these widows, right. uh, and so and, so. And, and and you look at that passage there in Acts. It says, "Whom we will appoint." Yes, sir. Yes, sir. They're, they're not elected officers. That's you know? right. Yeah. That's right. I don't know where the 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 change came. Where you walk into some churches and the pastor can't get anything done unless the deacon say so. But you know where that came from? It's yeah. a tradition that came to north, came north from the south. You see, pastor, like I told you, my father was pastor of four churches at one time, which meant that he went to one church per month. Mm-hmm. He went to a different church every Sunday in the month. So when he was not there, the deacons were in charge. They would have prayer meeting, Bible studies, and Sunday school on the Sundays he was not there. So they felt that they were in charge. 
and um, and that 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 kind of of attitude and authoritarian kind of uh, attitude came with them when people moved from the south to the north. In most of the churches, look from South Carolina, let's say from from Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, people migrated into Washington, Philadelphia, and New York, and they brought those practices and those those um authoritarian kind of feelings with them when they joined churches here. Because all of them who came from the South would come to church right, you know, right. and would be members of the church. But they, they brought that attitude because they were in charge down there of the churches because the pastors were not there full-time. Only in most of the larger towns and cities where pastors were full-time. But 90% of the churches were pretty well controlled by deacons. And, and trustees. I, I make it clear to him, Pastor. I say just just as the Bible gives the pastor the authority to appoint, uh, uh, um, um, implied there also is that I still have I also have the authority to disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you don't, they'll disappoint you. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes, so so, Pastor, you you were you were doing well pastoring down there in South Carolina. Um, I'm assuming, and I, I want you to give clarity. When did you enter into the movement, the civil rights movement? When did you oh, start getting when, active? When I was in high school. Okay. When I was in high school, a Marita truck driver. They used to deliver bread by trucks to super to little stores, and, a, and I can never forget a Marita truck driver slapped a black woman in Marion, who was a, she owned the little store, and they would deliver Marita bread twice a week. Um, to her store, and he slapped her because she told him that the bread that he gave her the last time that was stale, mm-hmm. and uh, and she was very strong in her giving him what was wrong with the bread and the reason why it could not be sold, and she would not sell it because ninety percent of her customers were black people, and she would not sell stale bread to her customers, mm-hmm. and he he got anger slapped, and I never forget that as long as I live, and when. When I heard about that, and now I'm no more than maybe 12 or 13 years old, when I heard about that, I asked my pastor, Reverend Cato, I mentioned his name to you, um, could I make a statement one Sunday night at church? And he said yes, because on the fifth Sunday nights down there, churches in the little town would come together and have service. So that Sunday night at our home church, uh, all of the little churches in Marion were there, and I got up and told them what happened to this lady. And I said, and I don't think. We ought to be buying Marita bread. Now, that was before selective patronage, before what we call barcoding. Mm-hmm. We didn't know nothing about that. I just said, I don't think we should. I said, I think we ought to just buy flour from the grocery stores that's being raised, run by black people, make biscuits. And they looked at that as a protest. And those who were what we called, I used to call handkerchief head men, who were afraid of the white man, told me I was going to get in trouble if I didn't leave that alone. But I didn't leave it alone. And uh, I kept talking about that until it really took on to the extent that um, the Marita um, bigwigs came to our town to find out why there was a dip in the sale of their bread. And it was because we were on a little boycott, and we didn't even know the meaning of the word boycott. I just was saying the best way for us to do it is save ourselves. Well, that was in Marion. That was when I was in Marion, when I went to Morris College. Uh, and Morris College had its own little theological seminary there, too, you know. And um, I was taking um, some Bible. We were in the book of Amos. And um, 
um, the black preachers would broadcast on Fridays and Saturdays. The white preachers would broadcast Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays. But the black preachers, some of the black preachers agreed with the white preachers that they will not deal with the race problem at all. How can you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and don't deal with the problems mm. that the people are facing? So when they put me on to preach, I, when we were studying the book of Amos at that time, and I preached from the book of Amos, where they sold the poor for a pair of shoes, you know, that kind of preaching. They turned me off the air. They cut me off the air and threatened me. Wow. But as the Lord would have it, it was up, the studio was upstairs on Main Street in Sumter. And when I came down the stairway to go to the car, Reverend H.P. Sharper, and right now he's, he's a retired bishop, Fred James, um, Herbert Nelson, who was a Presbyterian preacher, all of them were listening in. And when they cut me off, for some reason, all of them, at, all of them decided we better go down to the station because Hall was being cut off. We don't know what's going to happen. And when I came downstairs, some white men had gathered. But across the street, these preachers that is this name were there. And time I walked out, and my wife was with me. Time I walked out, along with Elizabeth, um, Reverend Sharper crawled right out. Hall, are you all right? We're down here with you. We're down here for you. You don't have nothing to worry about. And that um, kind of started the movement in Sumter. Well, when I went to Greenville, I went to Greenville, I was, was involved in the civil rights movement in Sumter. I went to Greenville, and I still had that fire burning. And I went to Greenville at the time when they had just lynched a black man. Now, when I say lynched, I mean beat him up. They didn't kill him. Beat him up for helping a poor white family. And um, um, some of the preachers told me, be, go there, but be careful now, because, you know, they, they almost killed this black man. When I got there, the first thing I asked the preachers there, how many of you going out to see about His name was Claude Cruel. How many of you going out to see about Claude Cruel and, and um, what his needs were? And not one, not even his pastor, had gone to his house. So um, Mr. Fred Garrett and I, who was, who was a trustee at the Springfield Church where I went to, went up to a little place called Traveler's Rest to check on this man. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's how I got moved, got started in the movement in, in Greenville. It, it, and uh, Jesse Jackson, along with a lot of the young people, Jesse Jackson was playing football then at Sterling High School. And a lot of the young people start coming to Springfield Church because they got a young preacher over there who is not afraid. I was 25 years old when I went to Springfield, and uh, a lot of the young people came and joined the church, and we just started dealing with problems. And the reason, the, one of the big things that happened while I was there was Jackie Robinson came to, Philadelphia, came to Greenville for the purpose of speaking at the NAACP convention, which met at the Springfield Church. But then where Jackie was going to speak was at the city uh, convention center. And uh, he came and stayed with us in the parsonage with us until it was time for him to speak. And me and my wife and uh, Mr. Wittenberg took him back to the airport. And when my wife went and sat in what they then called the white waiting room, and this big cop came up, stood over her, and said, well, you got to move. Black go in there. And I looked back and saw it. So I walked over to him. I said, what's the problem? He said, who are you? I said, that's my wife you're standing over. He said, oh, oh, I said, well, she got to move. I said, no, she doesn't have to move. I said, I'm the pastor of the Springfield Church. We pay taxes, so if she's lonely, I'll sit here with her. So I sat down. And Brother Mason, what really got me was the fact that 
when he went back and told the manager, the manager came out and was saying, lock them up. And and looked like a hundred black children converged on the airport. Hmm. And they were not coming there to, to because I was in, in about to be locked up. They came to see Jackie Robinson. But that passage of scripture say he'll give his angels charge over yes, you. Yes, sir. That 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 happened like it was practice, and it was not practice. Those children were just there to see Jackie Robinson. But this was going on when they got there, and they found out what was going on. And they said, Pastor Hall, we stand here with you. We stand here with you. And Mr. Robinson looked back at me and said, what's the matter, Pastor? And I told him. And he said, well, I, I guess now I'll just have to cancel my trip because he's getting ready to go back to New York. I said, no, we'll be all right. He said, well, if you need me, you let me know. Uh, we'll, we'll come back if you want me to. I said, fine. Now, this was in October of 1959. So I decided then that we would march on the airport on January of 1960. That's in the South Bend, we used to celebrate what we call the Emancipation Proclamation Day yeah. on the 1st of January. And we marched on the airport on the 1st of January, 1960. And, uh, and we won the case. Uh, it was open, so Jesse Jackson and all of them were in it. So Jesse Jackson those came to me and said, we want to continue what's going on because we, there's some other things we need to address. I said, fine. So they came to, to the parsonage, and we started planning. And so we started with the sitting at the library and at, at a park and at dime stores and that kind of thing. And that's, what the movement, that's how the movement got off of the ground in Greenville. Greenville is called the Piedmont area of South Carolina, and that's how I got over the ground in Greenville. You know what? I, and I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer, or I'm, I subscribe to every now and then just some random topics, and, and, and I find it ironic uh, that you said you were preaching from the book of Amos. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you really look at the life of the prophet Amos, uh, okay. you know, he was he was living a pretty good life uh, before God called him. And then God called him to God called him to preach. He didn't call him to preach redemption. He didn't call him to preach forgiveness. He said, no, nah, y'all about to be punished because I'm sick of y'all. You know? yeah. <laughs> and that was his message. Yes, and so so it's ironic that, you know, you stood up and you were preaching from a book to tell folk, look, it, it, listen, the time is now. We yes, got to make a move now, yes, uh, so so I, I, I applaud that. So so now, it, it, it help me. Give me a little more context. I think I shared with you before. Uh, I met uh, Reverend Jackson in Chicago, and I mentioned your name, and he looked yes. right up at me. He doesn't talk a lot, mu- not a lot now, but but when he says something, he says it. I said, you know, James, that's all. You he just looked up at me. He said, that, that's my pastor. Yeah. And and, and and so tell me how that relationship developed. It was great. It was great. Um, um, and Jesse was um, a senior, I think. Yeah, he was a senior when all of this took place because he left, he left um, Greensboro shortly thereafter and went to A&T in Greensboro, North Carolina. But um, the relationship, in fact, Jesse joined uh, the Triangle Church. His family was member, were members of Long Branch Baptist Church. But Jesse joined one Sunday morning when I opened the door of the church. Like about 38 young men came down the aisle and joined the, the Springfield um, Baptist Church, and he worshipped there. So we sit right by my wife, um, um, and um, some of the young men would come and worship. And when the whites started threatening me and all like that, they would come and spend the night right on the lawn or right on the front step of the parsonage, parsonage right next door to the church. But um, 
our relationship with Jesse kind of looked to me at his dad. Now, he, he had a great relationship with his mother and his father. His mother was a beautician, and his father worked at a hotel as a bellhop kind of job mm -hmm. at a hotel. But we had a great relationship. And it, it, even until now, I call Jesse now, or he'll call me at least maybe once a month and just talk. When my wife died, he couldn't come to the funeral, but he was really, um, he was really um, upset because he couldn't come. Sent a nice um, message to the family, and it was read at the funeral. But we have a great relationship, you know. And when Jesse ran for president back in '84, I was his, um, so it was kind of led his movement here in in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, me and Emma Chappelle worked together with, for his um, campaign for president. Wow. You're listening to Philly's Favor, 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3. We were having a wonderful conversation with the founding pastor of the Triumph Baptist Church here in Philadelphia, uh, the Reverend James S. Hall, Jr. Reverend Hall, on this backside of the interview, let's, let's move you now to Philadelphia. You've built a reputation in the South. You've been pastoring in the South. Uh, but now a change has come. Talk to us about what's, what, what, what uh, prompted that move to Philadelphia. Well, Reverend Anderson, who, who, who pastored the church where you were pastoring. Yes, sir. And who was the founder of the church, was from Greenville, South Carolina. And when he came to Greenville and they told him about the young pastor over the Triumph, over to uh, I keep trying to try, over to Springfield, he, um, he came over. But I met him before he, came to, um, before he came to Greenville that time because he came to the Morris College and they compared, uh, gave him the Doctor of Divinity degree. He was president of Philadelphia um, Baptist Ministers Conference at that time. So he, when he came there, um, and he, I was in the backyard of the parson, and he looked at me, he said, don't I know you, young man? I said, yeah. He said, well, I came here to, visit, to, to meet the new pastor at Springfield. I said, well, I'm the new pastor. He said, you the pastor at Springfield? I said, yes. And that uh, kind of started our relationship. He said, well, I'm going to have you to come up to Philadelphia and preach for me sometime. Well, you know, you hear that, and I say, thank you. I'd appreciate that, Doc. And we formed a relationship. So sure enough, he called me and asked me to come up, and I came and preached a week um, at, at your church. Um, and and, and um, uh, he heard about my struggle with this and the threats that we were going through, and he would call every now and then to see how he was doing. And, uh, and um, when Reverend Parrish died at Morris Chapel, he called me and asked me, would I be interested in coming and preaching at the Morris Chapel Church? I said, I'd be glad to come and preach. He said, you know, I'm going to make arrangements. And he made arrangements. And that's how I made the connection through Reverend Anderson at Morris Chapel. And I came up and preached. And um, they asked if I would come back. Um, and that was in uh, November. And they asked if I would come back. And I told them I couldn't come back until sometime maybe in um, January. And they said, that would be fine because we're not going to do anything until then. And uh, I came back in January and preached. And then they interviewed me and asked me if I'd be interested in pastoring the church, and that's how it became. Because at that time, I was really going through it down in South Carolina. We mm -hmm. were being threatened. We'd have to move out of the parsonage. Sometimes the Dr. McPherson, who was um, uh, one of the black doctors in, in uh, Greenville, would call me and say, come on over to the house. Y'all don't stay over there. We don't know what's going to happen. we got to protect you. So we stayed during that time, a short period of that time, we stayed in the McPherson's home or Mr. Fred Garrett's home for protection. Um, and so it really got kind of, got kind of, I was threatened. Uh, Hearst was back in the yard to load my body and all that kind of stuff. So I um, decided that when 
the Marsh Chapel Church started talking to me about coming to Philadelphia is for the sake of my family and for the safety of my family. I decided that I would come this way. So in 1963, um, when Marsh Chapel Church called me, and uh, I came here. And uh, the Triumph Church came into being in 1969. Okay. So, so uh, b- before we talk Triumph, Pastor Hall, you got to tell me this. Was Reverend Anderson as tough as people tell me he was? Yes, they, he was. <laughs> yes, he was. They told me he <laughs> wasn't nobody to be played with. No, sir. No, <laughs> no sir. Kind of remind me of somebody I know you know very well whose name is Lee Mason, <laughs> who was a dear friend of mine. We had a great relationship. Yes. But Anderson was. And Anderson was president of the state um, convention um, shortly after I came. When, when I came here, a pastor from Pittsburgh was president, and Anderson followed him. But he didn't take any tea for the fever, Doc, none whatsoever. <laughs> yes, and, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. Because, you know, he, he organized, because I don't have to tell you, you know, the history of um of Northeast, yes. he organized that out of Second Baptist. That's right. That's uh-huh. right. Listen, I, I tell you a funny story. There was a there was a gentleman that um, that uh, was pastoring over at Second Baptist, uh, and I, you know, I wanted to develop a relationship with the church, so I had him come here to preach, and you know, just just try to rebuild that bond, you know. Right. And uh, I'll never forget, he came in and and he showed me some paperwork and and some old paperwork from the 60s and was talking to me about how Northeast was formed. And I I ended up looking at him. I'm like, well, what you want, reparations? I mean, what can I I do for you? I mean, it's it's 2000. At that point, 2017, 18, I I know what you say happened, but but I I can't do nothing for you. Exactly. Well, Northeast never happened for three pastors. That's right. That's right. right. That's right. You, you, your dad. And then Andy, who was, a, who was the organizer of it, yeah. That's it. That's it. Well, so so now you're in Philadelphia. You're at Mars Chapel. Uh, at some point in '69, you you get the, the the calling. You get the message from God that, that it's time for you to form your own church. Tell us a little bit about the forming of Triumph. Well, I had I had some problems, and I'll have to admit that it was not all the fault of um, Mars Chapel. Some of it my fault, and I think maybe we need to grow. And need to um, be honest enough to admit that we can make mistakes too. And so I made some mistakes, Doc, and uh, I ran into some difficulties. And I was getting ready to go back. Believe it or not, the Springfield Church in Greenville that I left mm-hmm. burned down, right. and they, they tried to call me back. And I was getting ready to go back, and uh, I called my mother and told her what was going on. But at that time, trying people, some of the trying people, were talking to me about um, organizing a church, and. Uh, I would talk with my mother about it, and she said, if those people want to follow you, don't you leave them like that. And I, and I thought she was going to say, you know, come on back home, son. You're my only boy. Come on back home. I'll be glad to have you there. But she didn't. And that really got me. That really got me because my daddy was gone then. And I thought Mama for sure would want me to come on back. And she said that to me, and I started thinking about that. And so I said, well, I better you know, um, give some really serious thought about giving the leadership to these people, and, and I did. And we um, met with um, Reverend Lester C. Smith, who passed Mount Sinai, and uh, we went to his church that Sunday morning. I preached, and the people who were asking me to stay uh, came, and that's how we got organized. And Reverend Anderson was presided over my organization. Yeah, I saw we, that in the history. He was all yep, over it. Yep, he presided over my organization. We had six preachers come out that night with me, and um, 
the Triune Church was organized in the basement of Mount Sinai. And as the Lord would have it, um, the church at 16th and Wayne Hawking that burned down was vacant. And Reverend Gilmore, who was a dear friend of mine, lived in that community. He told me about it. He went up, came up from the conference one Monday to 16th and Wayne Hawking. And uh, I made connection with the people who owned the church because it was, it was a Mount Hermon, United, Mount Hermon Church of God, uh, white congregation. And we were able to get in touch with the, with the man who was in control of the church. At, at, um, he was in Pottstown, I believe it was. But anyway, we got in touch with him, and he came down, and we talked. And we were able to get to church, and the 63 people, along with some others, came in clean and the kind of thing. And that's how we got going. Wow. And the Lord bless, has blessed, you know, because um, after we bought the church and was able to pay for it, as soon, seemingly as soon as we were able to burn the mortgage, the church caught on fire yeah. and burned down. We were living in the parsonage, wow. and we had to um, rethink what we were doing. But we, st- we, we organized the church based on the three E's that I told you about earlier on, that we were going to be a biblical-centered church, a Bible-centered church, and we were going to put our emphasis on evangelism, on education, and on economic empowerment. And that has been the guide by which we have grown the church. But before we really jump into to Triumph, and we've got a few more minutes with you, and I really appreciate you being on with me today. Um, but, but let me ask you this, because you, in a lot of what you share, you talk about how other pastors reached out and helped you, uh, how other pastors made a difference uh, in your ministry. Doc, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. I could be wrong. But... I don't feel that same connectivity uh, in in the preaching community anymore. To me, now it seems like it's a whole lot of competition out there. And 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 to be honest with you, nobody ought to be patting themselves on the back because there's still a whole lot of folk out there who don't know about Christ, who haven't accepted Christ. Has there is there a difference today from when you were coming up in ministry? Yes, it is, and you've got that right. Those older preachers. Preachers like Reverend E. A. Walker at Pennell and Lester C. Smith at Mount Sinai and William Anderson at Northeast and, and uh, J. I. Phillips, I can't remember the name of his church, and John White who passed down in um, in South Jersey. Those preachers put their arms around me and um, and they would they would call and Reverend Trapp at Thankful, you know, Jefferson at Abyssinia, they would call periodically just to see how I was doing, see what was going on and where they needed to help me. Uh, Reverend John Stewart, I don't know if you remember him or not, um, those, those, um, those um, preachers would call to see what was going on and how I was getting along and that kind of thing. So, but, but now you've got it right, Doc. Now it's, it's who is the biggest, who is the most popular, um, we don't have preachers who pastor in this town who don't even bother to come to the conference, not to even share their success story. You know, there's a there is a kind of small selfishness among the clergy that um and I thought after black clergy was organized that was going to help it in the pastors' conference, minister conference after they merged. I thought that was going to help it, but I haven't seen too much um, improvement along that line. And we need one another. God um, knows we do. God yeah, knows we, need we do. One another, yeah. Absolutely. I I'll never forget when my father uh, had some issues here uh, at Northeast, mm-hmm. um, and and I remember going to that trial every day, 
and and you know who I saw sitting up in the witness stands because they couldn't fit them all out in the benches? Preachers. Uh, right. Preachers. Every there. day, they right. were there. They were there, right. Oh, man. It, it, Your father and I traveled together. We went to, we went to Nassau, uh, Bahamas, and spent two weeks together just reading and, and um, enjoying ourselves and preaching to one another. We had a great relationship. Yes, you know? sir. Yes, sir. You know? Yes, sir. Great but while I'm talking about your mother's doing well. You know what? My my mother is battling Alzheimer's. Oh, my uh, and, um, you Uh-oh. know, um, we actually just celebrated her 88th birthday. Praise the Lord. Uh, last yeah. week. Uh, but she's she's battling. And, and the one thing I have come to terms with, Pastor, is that I'm going to get my smiles in the moment. I'm yeah. a, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get my joy in the moment because, you know, 15 yeah. minutes later, she's not going to remember. But I hold on to those smiles, those smiles while, they right? were in, while they're in yeah. the moment. I mean, the yeah. church this past Sunday had a birthday party for her. And she she got up. She was dancing and having a good time. I can't focus on the fact that she didn't remember it by the time she got home. What I can focus on is she had a good time while she was here. Yep. Focus on what you do with the positive. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. That's great. Yes, sir. Well, thank tell you. Tell when you see you, because the last time I saw you when I was out there when you named the street for your father. Yes. Um, for, and um, and uh, I got a chance to speak to her then, and she remembered me. Yes, yes. She remembered me. That Absol- was important to me. Absolutely. My mother lived to be 98. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Praise the Lord. Amen. Yeah. And well, God, next year I'll be 90. I, the, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm about yeah. to get into that. I just want yeah. to ask one more thing. We got about five more minutes together. Uh-huh. Um, talk to me about. You know what? We I, I've spent so much on your history. I don't have a lot of time to dig into Triumph, but Triumph is an influential church in this city. Uh, you've been at the lead of helping mayors get elected, uh, helping city officials, other city officials, and even presidents get elected. I mean, talk to me. Let's spend the rest of the time. Let's talk to the young preachers. Y'all, young, but how do you how do you make a difference with your pastorate? Is one well, thing. I would do. I, let me say this. Um, and I say this to the young preachers, be very careful uh, how uh, not to sell your soul for a position or uh, to be popular. Um, if you're going to deal with politicians, and you have to, you know, um, the church cannot say we're not going to deal with politicians. No, we have to deal with politicians. We are, um, but we have to deal with them in a way that we can demand respect. I worked with this present mayor we have now and never asked him for anything um, in terms of um, um, giving me a position or, or money and that kind of thing. I didn't do that. My concern was to what can I get for the people in the community, and not just for the people of Triumph, but for the people of the community. That's where I am. And I think the young preachers need to stay so you can say to Ahab, it ain't going to rain. <laughs> and don't be afraid to tell Ahab it ain't going to rain. But if you're going to eat at Ahab's table, you can't pronounce judgment on his action. And that's my, that's my, that's my position. And it's always been my position, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and it followed me with from, from my father's teaching and, my, and the training that I got in our seminary at Morris College. Uh, to the extent, Doc, would, would you believe that the University of South Carolina called me back last year and honored me, and we, when I was growing up, 
We couldn't even cut the lawn at the University wow. of South Carolina wow. in Columbia. God is awesome, Pastor. Yes, it is. God is yeah. awesome. So, yes, so now you've been pastoring Triumph for 52 years. You went from 63 members to, to and, I, and listen, we all got, we all have a roster number and then those who actually show up. So let's just talk, <laughs> let's just talk roster numbers. 63 members to how many now? Well, in, I would imagine between 4,000 and 5,000 in terms of membership on the roll mm-hmm. uh, who's joined. But uh, we, we can seat uh, 2,800 people. And uh, we, we worship, I would imagine, when, doing, not during the pandemic, you know, right. but um, during the normal time, we worship in the neighborhood of 15 to to 1,800 people. And it's a beautiful facility right off of Broad Street, uh, facility built after um, under your tutelage, under your leadership. One day I'd love to have you back and talk about that story because I know a building story. There's got to be a lot of ups and downs with it. But, I'll be glad to talk with you. But, I'll be glad to talk with but you. It's a lot, but, you, but you built it, and it's, it's a beautiful facility. I love going in there. Um, now, let's, let's just, let's just uh, talk about this. Um, I know your daughter is... Uh, is she your, what's her title? Is she your associate pastor? She's or my assistant pastor. Assistant pastor. Uh-huh. I know you have other ministers there. Yeah. You've been in this thing 52 years. My dad always told me he was going to pastor until we rolled him out of Northeast, and he did. He yeah. did. But yeah. but talk to me, uh, almost 90, over 70 years of preaching. What's next for James S. Hall? Are you going to be, are you just going to keep preaching until the Lord no, says no, no more? No, no, I'm thinking seriously. The dog come. In fact, I've appointed a transition committee. It's interesting that you asked me that. I wow. appointed a transition committee, and I'm thinking serious about uh, my retirement. Now, I don't want to date it, but I'm thinking serious about my retirement. Okay. And uh, I, I'd like to, I'd like to just, if the Lord will allow me to live a few years, just visiting and preaching, and, and don't have that pastoral uh, responsibility. But um, right now, I'm not going to date it because I want to make sure I have everything in order, so that there will be a smooth transition. And um, we'll be able to help grow the church. You know, I'm pastor for life, but I'm not, I'm not going to take advantage of that. I would want to help grow the church, uh, keep the church going, but I don't want to stand in the way of whoever will be my successor. So, so I, had, uh, I had Mayor Kenny on a couple weeks ago, and I, and I said, can we break some news on my show? I said, uh, you got to name a new city health commissioner. Is it going to be Al- Alice Stanford, and when will she be appointed? And he, uh-huh. said, he said, Pastor, I, I can't do that. You know, okay. He says, I, I'm going on a nationwide search, and then we'll, we'll come back to you. So, so I'm going to ask you, maybe we can make some no, no news on this show today. Uh, you put a transition team in place. Uh, can, can you tell us who you believe that next person is going to be? Well, I'm, I'm gonna be like the mayor this time. I, I don't want to do that right now because I want that committee to feel that, that they can um, can come up with and recommend it to me, and then I will make some kind of decision and make um, an announcement. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, well. Listen, listen. Before we go, I gotta ask this, and if if if, if it if it uh, takes a little time, we'll we'll do it the next time. You know, okay. there's never a day that goes by I don't think about Lee Mason Jr. Uh, he was he wasn't yeah. just my daddy, he was my hero. Yes, uh, right. He pastored this church for 41 years, and I always tell people, if I could just be half the pastor he was, I'm going to be very successful here. Yes, right. He uh, was at, at Northeast 41 years? 41 years, Pastor. Crazy. 40, oh, yeah. 41 well, years. Northeast is how old now? Northeast is 62, 63 years old. Praise God. 
63 yeah, years old. But I, I want, on. yes, sir. I wanted to ask you: Can you just share one story with me uh, about my daddy? Is that possible? Well, actually, we had one of the finest relationships of of um, um, any two preachers in town. We didn't see each other every day, didn't talk to each other every day. But he would call me. He called me Jim, you know, and I'd call him Lee. And um, when and we discussed preaching to each other and that kind of thing. When there was a problem, he would talk to me about it. And then the same thing here. We had a great social life together. We understood one another and that kind of thing. Um, um, I preached for him several times. He preached for me in, in, in the old church. Mm-hmm. Um, the church had burned down a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about Anderson being tough. Your daddy was no pushover, brother. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> no yes, pushover I know. whatsoever. I know. Yeah, I, yeah. Listen, I had to live with him. I know. <laughs> I know. He yes, didn't take sir. no stuff. He didn't no, take no uh-huh. stuff. Well, well, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to put out a message. I want all the young preachers, I want pastors in Philly to listen to this interview uh, with you uh, and just just learn. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to sit under the learning tree. Uh, so I thank you for coming here on Philly's Favor 100.7, 99.5 HD3. Uh, Pastor Hall, keep on preaching the gospel. Keep on leading people. And and I want you to know, when that time comes where you do make a, where you do make the announcement, I want you to know there's always a pulpit right here at Northeast Baptist Church where you can come preach. I appreciate that. Now, you don't know how much I appreciate that. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you and victory, dog. Thank you. God bless you, Pastor. Bless you now. Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Mm-hmm. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you're while listening to Phyllis Faber. Yeah.